Coming up on Stu Does America, usually the left in the media love masked protesters, but not this time, apparently. We'll talk to Andrew Wilkow and give the latest about these dangerous people engaging in the completely un-American activity of assembling to protest their government. Plus, we've heard a lot from people yelling, close it down, and other people yelling, open it up. But not too many serious plans on how to do it. Avik Roy joins us to give us the outlines of his plan that's picking up steam in Washington. And Singapore passed a thousand infections in one day as, as its financial counterpart, Hong Kong, is reporting a continued streak of no new reported cases. But you're not going to hear a lot about why that's happening from the media. You will from us, however, because we live to annoy them. Make sure to subscribe to the show on YouTube and Facebook and your favorite podcast platforms. Be sure to hit the YouTube bell for reminders uh, for all of our content. And if you're a Pluto TV customer, you can catch us as well on Pluto TV. And for those who just want to stand above the rest of the crowd, stand up proud and consider a Blaze TV subscription. Go to blazetv.com slash stew and make sure to use the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show and you'll get 30 bucks off your admission price. Plus, for a very limited time, I'm going to throw in a free barrel of crude oil with every purchase. Just look for a very large and leaky envelope in your mailbox. Stu does America. Ah, beaches opened up this weekend in Florida and people were quick to take advantage. However, I do think this is a massive mistake unless we couple it with specific interventions to minimize the harm to the public. With everyone on edge and willing to consider restrictions they would never have before, now is the time to take advantage and institute a full ban on those skimpy, super tight European bathing suits for men. Just do it. What does it have to do with the coronavirus? I don't know. Find something. Anyone who shows up on a beach in one of those goes immediately into a two-week isolation to think about what they've done. And that quarantine happens to be in the same bathing suit they wore to the beach. And the isolation happens in a fully mirrored room so they can check themselves out from every single angle imaginable, just like we have to. While it might not cure COVID-19, it probably would lower the suicide rate of other beachgoers enough to cover the entire pandemic. Throwing it out there, you could just take that if you're in Washington, just bring it right to a voting booth and, and we'll get that done. Now, we do have a solution to that national nightmare. We can now talk about the other one we're dealing with. It's hard to make sense of everything that's happening right now. The beaches in Florida actually did open up this weekend, but only for essential activities like, I kid you not, surfing. Who designed these rules, Spicoli? Now, I will admit that is a bit of a dated reference. It's ref referring to uh, Sean Penn's character in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, who really loved surfing. Here's a screenshot of him seconds after he used an anti-gay slur. Doesn't Sean Penn look happy after using that anti-gay slur? He sure does. <sighs> anyway, since surfing is an exercise, apparently it's an essential activity. Hmm. As is going for a walk or a jog. You can do those things on a beach, but you can't sit and read or get a tan as if pasty skin is not a national tragedy as well. Figuring out what is essential versus what is not essential has been a fascinating thing to watch the government slog its way through. I'd say about 90% of what the uh, government does is not essential, but I haven't seen many government workers losing their salaries. Have you? On the other hand, where am I right now? At work. For some reason, this stupid show has been deemed essential. To whom exactly 
Sure, to the thousands of people who keep reviewing the show on iTunes and saying, it's great, whatever. Maybe it's essential to them, but is a TV show really essential? What about a movie in which Sean Penn uses anti-gay slurs and then laughs hysterically? Is that essential? I'd argue that it is. I'd like to offer a quick suggestion uh, to figure out kind of a baseline for what is essential and what is not. And here's my starting point. Get ready for it. Your constitutionally guaranteed rights. I mean, if the Constitution says the government can't take it away from you, I'm going to go on a limb and say the government can't take it away from you. That means church. It's essential. That means the ability to purchase a firearm. Essential. That means the right to protest. Essential. The courts have ruled consistently on the side of states restricting activities in a public health emergency, as long as it's for a short time. But is that the right thing to do? The media would surely say yes. They hammered the president for tweeting some general support for protesters in a few states this weekend. They were much more friendly to the blue state governors who threatened arrest and fines for anyone breaking their quarantine rules. But let's say a Republican governor was to authorize the arrest of journalists for covering what was happening at hospitals or morgues or even covering those protests themselves. My guess is the media would not embrace the argument of, sorry journalists, freedom of the press doesn't apply during these tough times. You think the media would pick this up, especially since their right to cover the protests is the same exact amendment that allows the protests to continue. A nice safety tip is this. Constitutionally guaranteed rights are always applicable. I mean, we're breaking all sorts of new ground today. When there are exceptions to the rule, they're usually included in the text itself. For example, my favorite amendment has to be the third. Why? Because it's the ugly stepchild in the Bill of Rights. No one ever refers to the third amendment. The first, the second, the fourth, the fifth, all the time. Never the third. It's the one that says the government can't quarter soldiers in your house which makes sense. I feel like I should be the one making decisions about who has a slumber party in my home. Are there exceptions to this rule? Yes. It's built right into the amendment. No soldier shall, in time of peace, be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. So they can't make random military members your roommates during peacetime. In wartime, they absolutely can assuming they just pass a law that says so. How about the 13th Amendment? That's the one that said, you know what's a really crappy idea? Slavery. Well, that one has an exception, too. You probably remember the amendment reading something like this. Neither slavery or involuntary servitude shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. That's because we all sort of brush by the exception to the rule. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as punishment for a crime whereof a party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. If you commit a crime, damn straight we can make you slaves. That's the law. Now put on that jumpsuit and pick up the trash because we have to make this median look nice and neat for everyone driving by at 85 miles per hour. Again, it's in the Constitution. Remember that. I understand that you can't fit every single situation into the Constitution, But it's a pretty good rule of thumb that you shouldn't be trampling on rights specifically outlined in the document. I can appreciate a good adult beverage from time to time, 
But making liquor stores essential, because I guess they help some people deal with the stress of this new world we're living in, while at the same time saying it's a crime to go to church, that's not okay. You can ask people not to go to church. You can ask nicely. You can ask often. You can nag like the most annoying housewife on Real Housewives of New Jersey. But you shouldn't be demanding people not gather to worship. You can't do that. And you know what will happen if you ask nicely? Almost everyone will agree with you. They don't want their elderly friends and relatives dead either. That's why almost every church in America went online before they were told to do so by the government. And some decided to do some services in line with social distancing. Those people aren't people you should ticket. They're people you should praise publicly. Are these protests that went on this weekend a good idea? Well, I mean, I think they're mostly done with good motivations and are probably mostly made up of good people who correctly recognize that our freedoms are not optional. Our economy is our civilization and we can't abandon that. We need to find sensible ways to get back to work while still doing our best to protect innocent life. I will say when it comes to advancing that argument, these protests might not be the best idea. Because if one of these gatherings keys an outbreak, it's going to be Exhibit A to make the case that we can't reopen. To me, the president outlined some pretty sensible plans. End of the month with the highest restrictions, and then we can switch to a careful plan to reopen things. But regardless if the protests are a good strategy, I don't think you can force people to stop protesting. Think of how a more tyrannical government would use those powers. Start a state of emergency and then crush the protests? It's an easy formula that we do not want to introduce into our country. And this goes especially for the left. You're telling us the president is Hitler and you want the government to arrest protesters. These two positions cannot coexist, just like our beaches and European speedos cannot coexist. While we still have these extreme powers in the time of global pandemic, we must come together to abuse those powers and ban the banana hammock from our beaches now. That's a constitutional amendment we can all get behind. So with all the uncertainty in the world, feeling safe at home has never been more important. That's why I want to talk to you about Simply Safe Home Security. They're longtime friends of this network, and for good reason. Simply Safe has made it easy to finally get comprehensive protection for your home. There's no technician or salesperson that needs to come to your house and disrupt it. And I will say, right now, that's not really even an option. You, Simply Safe is the way to go, especially now. You don't want people traveling, coming in and out of your house. Who knows what viruses they're carrying? Forget it. This is easy. You can do it yourself. You don't need to pay any outrageous monthly fees either, or sign two-year contracts. You just order online, you set it up yourself, it takes less than an hour, and your home is protected 24-7 with emergency dispatch for break-ins, fire, and more. And it's all for just 50 cents a day. We don't know where this uh, country is going right now. We're in a very uncertain time. What a great time to take some steps and protect yourself, protect your home, protect your family with Simply Safe. And we're not the only fans of Simply Safe. U.S. News and World Report named Simply Safe the best overall home security of 2020. Take this step. It's an easy one. Right now, you can head to simplysafe.com slash stew. You'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. Be sure to go to simplysafe.com slash stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Be back in a second. So we're about a month into the quarantine and the prospects are looking grim, but grim just, I mean, 
honestly just ask my wife at this point. Uh, it's, it's not looking good to her. Uh, protests are breaking out across the country. Uh, we are struggling to understand how we're going to emerge from this thing. How do we reopen the economy? What are the risks? Of course, we know a loss of life is a possibility. But where exactly is the line between those risks and a jump-started economy, which, you know, it's not just our economy. It's not Wall Street people lining their pockets here. We're talking about our civilization. Uh, it's, 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 it's our society. It's at risk here. Uh, I can't think of a better guest on this subject than Ovik Roy. He's the president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity and one of the authors of the new piece, A New Strategy for Bringing People Back to Work During COVID-19. Ovik, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. How are you? Uh, really well. Um, you know, you're doing something interesting here in that I think most of the debate on this topic is one side yelling, keep it closed, and one side yelling, open it up. And I don't know how, I, I don't know what that really gets us. You've really taken the time to go through a plan and you started in an interesting place, which is what if we've been a little too optimistic? Uh, and that is a really interesting place to start this. Give me your reasoning why you started it there. Yeah, so the, when we wrote the plan, when we started working on writing the plan, there had been this public health consensus that, you know, well, listen, we have to lock down the economy now, but don't worry, everything's going to be fine. We just have to ramp up testing and develop a new treatment for COVID-19 and get a vaccine and everyone will eventually get immune and then everything's going to be fine. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm reading these kinds of white papers and analyses and commentaries out there and I'm like, there is no assurance at all that we'll achieve each of those things, let alone all four of them. There's actually a very good risk that we, or a very bad risk, I guess you could say, that, that we'll achieve, we'll fail to achieve those things. What if we can't develop a vaccine? What if we can't ramp up testing? What if a, tre a treatment does eventually get developed, but it takes too long? Are we going to keep the economy on lockdown for six months, 12 months, two years? At what point do we say, you know, enough, we can't lock down the economy anymore? And we've already seen this catastrophic collapse, 22 million people filing for unemployment benefits, something like a third of the economy shut down. I mean, it's a serious, serious problem. So we started with that pessimistic case, you could say, of saying, hey, what if we can't do all those things? We still have to figure out a way to ramp up the economy. Yeah. And this is it's an interesting thing, because I think we'll, we'll we'll figure out a way if we come up with a miracle vaccine, if we come up with a with a great cure, that's going to be easy in comparison to what happens on the other side of this. Um, can you go through because I know I have this sort of thing in the back of my head, which is if we can get through this tough time now when it's brutal, uh, if we can get through this tough time now, there is that thing around the corner. There will be a treatment. There will be a vaccine. Why? Why is it important to make a case for pessimism on those things? Look, it's like everything in life, right? We hope for the best, but plan for the worst. And so particularly our government and the people who lead it have to plan for the worst. The public does, too, because people who run businesses, people who go to work every day, people who have families to take care of, they have to understand the real risks and dangers of the situation we find ourselves in. And that risk, those risks are that we can't reopen the economy up. Things don't go back to normal, and we don't actually develop that treatment. So the question then becomes, we spent all this effort to lock down the economy and tell people to stay home, all that kind of stuff. Now we actually have to completely change our mental, uh, our mental framework 180 degrees and say, how do we actually get the economy opened up in the first place or, or, or back to where it was or try to? What parts of the economy are the easiest to bring online most quickly? And what we start with is by saying, hey, let's reopen the schools. It turns out that one of the 
opportunities, you could say, of COVID-19 is that it disproportionately affects the elderly. Children and younger adults are at very low risk of hospitalization and death. So let's get as many of them back to school, back into the workforce as we can. And if we do that, we can start to bring this economy back online and then chip chip away at it from there. What other low-risk or low-risk populations or low-risk businesses or low-risk activities can we reopen so that more and more of the economy can get back online, but do so in a strategic and careful way so we're not jeopardizing public health. First of all, let's take a second on the schools because, uh, number one, that's going to make my wife incredibly happy. Uh, so I, she's already on board with your plan, just so you know you at least have one supporter out there. Um, I want a tough thing with the schools because it's true in that there's almost been, there's almost you know, very low risk of, uh, of kids in, in this particular thing, thank God. Um, however, you know, the teachers are another issue here where uh, many of the teachers are going to be uh, of, of, of a certain age that is going to be very much affected by this. How, how, do we, how do we navigate those waters? Yeah, so in the plan, we do talk about that. And we say, look, if, if you're a teacher who's elderly or you're a teacher who's at risk, maybe because you're middle-aged, but you have other kinds of conditions, like you have a heart condition or high blood pressure, diabetes, then maybe you should stay home and not, and not teach. But for younger teachers, and a lot of teachers are young, for younger teachers, mm-hmm. people who aren't at risk, they should be able to work. Kids who don't live with elderly grandparents, but who live with uh, average parents, you could say, they should be able to go back to school. And look, localities will have a lot of flexibility and latitude in how they decide how to do this, which is why we created a certain amount of a range of options here. Maybe some localities say, you know what, we're going to treat people like adults and If you're on the elderly side, but you sign a waiver saying, I understand the risks, I want my kid to go to school or I want to keep working, then that's fine. And other localities may uh, may not want to do that. They may not want to take that risk. But I I, I err on the side of saying, let's treat people like adults and and let them know what the risks are. Be very straight with them about that, but give them the choice, especially now that we're in a situation where we're not at risk of our hospitals being overwhelmed. That, remember, was the original logic of the lockdown. Mm -hmm. We needed to protect our hospitals from being overwhelmed like Italy. Now that we're over that hump, we should err on the side of reopening the economy, reopening the schools. And I think that that is really where we are, right? I mean, I think that's that's true. It makes sense to really, like, take a moment. You know, we, we had to shut this thing down. The hospitals, you don't want to be overwhelmed. And we've learned something about the way this progresses. We've been able to build up uh, stockpiles of, of needed materials. But we are at a point where this this obviously can't last forever. Um, one of the ideas that you, you mentioned in the plan is trying to keep elderly and, and, and susceptible populations as isolated as possible. Um, there's been some criticism of that idea generally in that, how do you do that? I mean, there are people who are nurses for elderly people. They're younger. They would not be in that population. I know my kids want to see their aunt. They want to see their grandparents. How does that work? Um, and, you know, when you go through uh, all those uh, sort of scenarios, we don't want to get to a situation where we're basically saying to elderly people, you're now in prison for the, for the next five years. How, how does that work exactly? Well, it's a couple things. First, I mean, I, I feel the same way. My kids can't see their grandparents either because we live in Austin, Texas, and, and my mom lives in, in Michigan, and my wife's parents live in New Jersey. So that's the situation we're in. 
Um, so I, I get it. Uh, and, and, I th- and I think you have to leave it up to those individuals to some degree, elderly individuals, and say, hey, look, if you're willing to take the risks, then um, then that's one thing, especially, again, in a time when hospital capacity is more manageable and the supplies get back online, the ventilators and the masks and things like that. The key, One of the things we highlight in the plan, one of the key things we have to focus on is nursing homes. In Europe, about half the deaths to COVID-19 have taken place in nursing homes. And while that hasn't, it hasn't been the same proportion in the U.S., it has been a major source of problems. And so we've got to do more there to, to test aggressively in nursing homes, not just of the residents of the nursing homes, but the staff, right? Because what will happen is a staff member will go from one nursing home to another and spread the disease that way. So we've got to do a lot better job of making sure the staff is being tested repeatedly so that they don't spread the disease. And, of course, making sure that we're keeping an eye on infection rates in the nursing homes themselves. Uh, a couple of parts of this that I think kind of go together are the um, the idea of people with pre-existing conditions, maybe not elderly, but younger that have pre-existing conditions. It's a pretty large population, depending on which conditions you're talking about. I mean, some estimates are up at almost half the population have some sort of pre-existing condition or chronic illness. Um, that's a big part of this. And I think one of the ways you, you have to deal with this is after we get out of the shutdown, you have um, uh, a situation where you need to really closely monitor any potential flare-ups. And I believe you're kind of going into contact tracing. Do those things kind of work together? Yeah, so on the issue of people with pre-existing conditions and how that relates to COVID-19, generally speaking, the evidence that we have thus far, which is preliminary, is that people with diabetes, heart disease, obesity, high blood pressure are at greater risk uh, for having a more severe outcome with COVID-19. Now, over time, as we get more experience with the disease, we may be able to narrow that down. Maybe it's not everybody with high blood pressure, but maybe it's people with a high blood pressure above 200. Or maybe it's people in terms of diabetes where their blood sugar is at a certain level or their hemoglobin A1C levels are at a certain level. So we may have the ability over time to really narrow what exactly is that population that is really truly at risk. And that helps us then bring more and more people back into the economy. The point about contact tracing is really relevant to this issue of the limitations of testing. One of the things we go into detail on the plan on is the fact that we're really not going to be able to scale up testing. Testing is not going to be able to do all the things that a lot of people in, in, in both in, in the policymaking community and in the public's mind can do. We think of testing as, oh, yeah, you get a test, it's positive, it's negative, everything's great. Well, tests in the real world don't really work that way. And so what does contact tracing allow you to do? It's actually a very old-fashioned technique where you get infected. Uh, and what, what you do in the old days is say, okay, the public health department would come over to your house and say, okay, you've been infected. Tell me who you talked to in the last two days or mm-hmm. two weeks. Who'd you hang out with? Who'd you spend a lot of time with? And then, then let's go back and talk to those people and work backwards to make sure we're, we're talking to all the people who are potentially at risk and who may have given you that infection along with uh, given others. So in that way, you can use what's called contact tracing to help uh, control the spread of the disease. Now, What do we have now that's different from, say, 1918 when we did this with the Spanish flu? It's these smartphones in our pockets with the GPS and the Bluetooth. So there are techified ways to do contact tracing that are going to amplify the ability to do it relative to the traditional method. And that could help make that technique more effective than it's been in the past. Uh, does, do the, the privacy concern is going to be something you're especially going to get, I think, from conservatives uh, on this. Is that I mean, is it something that you feel like people are opting in on? How does that work? Yeah, the privacy element is is important to think about. The way I think about it is 
if you want to think about what's an intrusion on your liberty, I think not being allowed to go to work, not being allowed to take your kids to school, mm. those are pretty big intrusions on your liberty, too. And, and if we're being forced to choose between two types of intrusions on your liberty, privacy or that, I, I'd rather have, give people the opportunity to actually make some money and, and, and feed their families. So that's, that's the way I think about that piece of it. The other piece of it is there are ways uh, to protect privacy. It's, it's all a spectrum, right? The more you really are aggressive about protecting privacy, the less effective this tool is, for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. There's maybe a sweet spot in the middle. And country, different countries have tried different approaches, and, and Google and Apple and some other tech companies are trying to come up with a way that, that allows you to, uh, to adhere to the privacy laws that are on the books in the U.S. today, but also provide an effective form of contact tracing. So my hope is that we'll, we'll, we'll meet somewhere in the middle on this from a technology standpoint, but it's an appropriate uh, part of our debate to, to talk about it. I will say I'm willing to give up almost all my freedoms to go back to dine-in movie theaters. So that is just, I mean, but that's just me. I don't know if that's going to work for everybody. Um, let me ask you one more thing here, because the plan is really detailed. And I, I really like that you've taken, you've taken the, you know, the, the initiative to like actually line out what this looks like, because so many people are just talking in these generalities. And we see a lot of people who, hey, open up the economy. Well, if people don't want to go back in because they're terrified they're going to die, that's not going to work. Um, so we have to, you really have this outlined well, including, I think, an interesting part of this, which is encouraging testing at work, which we, we I'd love to get into more at some point. I want to ask you one more thing about one specific thing on, on your plan, which is you talk about uh, covering, uh, talking about opening hotels up for COVID-19 patients. Um, and that's an interesting solution. It's kind of, is that a difference between a home quarantine versus a central quarantine? Is that kind of what the idea is? Well, this is something that some of the state governments uh, are looking at. They're looking at the idea of, okay, if we do have to keep certain types of at-risk people at home, like the elderly, and, and, and let's, let, let's say you're 67, but you're still working, you haven't retired, so you're at risk. Uh, what can we do for that individual to make sure that they're economically whole? Well, part of what we can do is, is help them live somewhere where they're not potentially infecting their relatives. Or let's say you're a grandparent who lives with a school-aged kid, right, and you want that kid to go to school. Maybe the way you deal with that is to have that, uh, that elderly individual, the grandparent, live in a hotel and let the kid live at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that could be a way to, to reconcile some of those issues. And by the way, because so few people are traveling right now, there are a lot of open hotel rooms around the country. So the idea is let's Let's take advantage of that those vacancy rates and help the hotel business too by by giving them uh, people who uh, who can who can live where their uh, where their hotels are already operating. Over Roy is the uh, president of FreeOp, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Uh, we'll make sure we tweet the plan out uh, today too because you, you should go through it. It's got stuff from the economy, the health side of it, really uh, front to back. It outlines the entire thing. Over, thanks thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Hey, Stu, thanks a lot. All right, we're back in a second. We do uh, Stu Does the News pretty much every day. I think this one should be called Stu Does Graphs because we've got tons of graphs for you today. I want to start off with oil, which is one of the strangest things you've ever seen. It went down below zero today. Now, this is sort of just a quirk of the way these things are traded with futures and everything, but it actually hit negative $53.47 a barrel, which means tomorrow if you go to the gas station and you fill your tank up, they're going to pay you a lot of money. That's what it means. If they deny that, they're scamming you. And you should sue the gas station and sue the parent company. Don't tell anybody that I was the one that gave you that advice. 
But it is pretty amazing to see it drop like that. I also want to give you this thing on Singapore. We talked about it at the beginning of the show. Uh, there's a divergence between Singapore and Hong Kong. They followed basically the same um, path, uh, a little bit different strategies, but similar. And it's been sort of a model for the United States. The problem with it, of course, is you have to get it early. You can't start when there's a, already a massive breakout like New York City has and start the policies of Singapore and Hong Kong. A lot of high, a lot of invasive tracking that you're not going to want to deal with. Uh, there's a lot of issues with it when it coming to, comes to the United States. Los Angeles tried to do uh, contact tracing, just gave up because there's just too many people with it. You, you got to start it early. Testing needs to be there early and you need to start it early. Hopefully we can do this and we can kind of tamp it down after, after this uh, few weeks. Um, but look at this graph. This is the, the divergent cases here. And you're seeing now um, that uh, Singapore has rec- uh, recorded now about 1,500 new cases in a day, while Hong Kong, zero cases for 12 straight days. And it's interesting. That's kind of the headline. And a lot of people are talking about this and saying, wow, you can see if 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 you kind of loosen up, what could happen here? You know, Singapore is going out of control. Hong Kong's in fine shape. And we can't do that here. We got to watch that. When you read the story, though, it kind of gives you a different um, a different understanding of the new cases. The vast majority are work permit holders living in foreign worker dormitories spread across the island. Um This is an issue here with the narrative, I think, with the media, because what we're seeing here is that this is basically migrant workers who are having almost all cases in Singapore. And it kind of makes an argument that maybe importing workers in the middle of a a, a pandemic, maybe not the best idea. Maybe it's a good argument for closing the borders at this time. Um, You know, we've talked about this many times in that uh, Mexico started really late on this. uh, Central America did, did almost nothing to prevent the spread of COVID-19, especially in the early days, much worse than our handling was of it. They don't get the criticism that the United States gets, but they had real, real problems there. What's going to happen on our border if we get it under control? We're case free somehow. And Mexico's dealing with tens of thousands of cases every day. That border is going to be a disaster. Uh, Singapore's seeing a version of that going on right now. Uh, and that's that's a, a development you're not going to hear too much about in the media. I want to give you this one. This one is getting passed around a lot uh, by some media members, some blue checks like this. Um, and it's it's you know, I, I hate to say like this because it's, it's terrible news. One thing we argued about for a while was what does the increase in covid-19 deaths mean in a larger scale when you're talking about the United States all cause mortality. This is the chart that shows kind of where everything is. Um, If we get this first one, yeah. And you can see on this chart, and I'll explain it to you if you're on the uh, podcast, you have the the, the flu deaths are down towards the bottom. There's two different ways to measure the flu. Flu and pneumonia are the one you've heard about most uh, that gives you those high 50s and 60,000 number. Some other, um, you know, car crashes is is noted towards the very bottom of the chart as a cause. And at the very top of the chart, there's two lines with cancer and heart disease as the number one and number two causes of death. And this is their uh, weekly average COVID-19, now that it has kicked into gear, you'll see why people are so worried about it. And you see why the president has done what he's done. The COVID-19 line, this is from New Atlantis, uh, goes all the way up and is just under, this is last week, just under uh, heart disease as the number one cause of death in America. Um, This is why these steps have been taken. This is with all the stuff that we've done. Uh, it is a it's a really bad thing we've, we're facing here. This is not just n- nothing. It's and I know, you know, most people who watch this show don't think of it as nothing. And you're just thinking worried about our, our economy, too. And the way the media presents this is 
hey, this is a really serious thing. If you think about the economy, if you think about anything other than saving the people from this disease at all costs, you're a hate monger and you want old people to die. We know that's not the case. We're adults here. Uh, Even though I make dumb jokes, this is supposed to be smart analysis, stupid jokes, and only occasionally the opposite. So we try to live up to that standard. We want to find a way to go forward. We spent a lot of time on this today, protecting people as best we can, but keeping our civilization intact. We'll continue to do that in uh, in coming days. We'll come back in just a second. Joining me now is the host of Will Cow, right here on Blaze TV, also the host of the Will Cow Majority on Sirius XM, braving the world of quarantine technology, Andrew Wilkow. Uh, Andrew, how are you holding up? Uh, pretty good. Uh, you know, the kids have been in the house without going outside except to peer off the deck for six weeks. Uh, Mrs. Wilkow, same thing. Uh, I, I've been going out to do my radio show and, I guess, uh, risk the zombie hordes to go grocery shopping. But it's, uh, I guess we're okay, considering. It is one of the strange things, I think, going through this in the media, uh, in that, like, I, same thing with me. I'm coming into work every day. I don't, I'm not experiencing this exact same way as the rest of, of the country. It does give you kind of a different uh, perspective. I, I can kind of understand how people are really stir-crazy if they haven't stepped out of the house at all. You know, but I don't know what happened with my, my uh, Skype connection, but I had this pair of rose gold kooky cat's eye sunglasses because I was going to do my best Joy Behar imitation for you. <laughs> because now she's saying that the people that are going out and protesting are terrorists. And <sighs> it, it's amazing how you tell people that there are guidelines they should follow, that we should social distance, wear masks, do these other things, wash our hands, um, Probably, if you're single, stay off Tinder. And then we've been doing this now for you know, six weeks. They, they keep pushing it further and further because the Congress, they know, will continue to reauthorize these spending bills. So they don't, the governors don't have to make these tough decisions as to when to open their economy so long as they know the government's going to give money back to the states. And this is the, the awful trade-off, Right that we're just going to keep plunging ourselves deeper into debt until the governors, I guess, or, or Joe Biden wins the election, because that's kind of what it feels like. Them, they want to prolong the misery. Yeah. Well, first of all, I would say uh, the Tinder thing is always good advice. I, it just doesn't seem like something you should be on. Um, secondly, I will say that the, the, looking at this uh, protest situation is really perplexing to me because, number one, I was under the impression that constitutional rights kind of stayed in place no matter what, which is why they were in the Constitution. And secondly, the last people in the world I would expect to want the government to be able to arrest protesters would be the left who is telling us that Adolf Hitler is essentially in office right now. I don't understand how those two positions work together, Andrew. Well, what's amazing is uh, for my my television program, I compiled uh, Antifa videos. And I'm going to juxtapose them with people like Jay Inslee and Kate Brown and all of these governors that have looked the other way while Antifa mass protesters, I guess they were wearing masks before it was cool. (laughs) They're on the streets, literally taking over the streets, not peaceably assembling, not exercising their constitutional rights when they're beating people that they don't agree with, when they're when they're blocking traffic and telling people they cannot proceed. These people, they're calling it Operation Gridlock, which might not have been the best name, but we've had people actually calling from their vehicles on my radio show, rolling down the windows and letting me hear the horns. For the most part, traffic is moving. 
are, are there going to be some people that might behave badly? It's entirely possible. I don't think that's the general rule here. But these people are getting out and, and following the guidelines of staying in their vehicles and circling their, their capitals to let the government know they're not happy. That's a lawful exercise of the right to petition the government for dress of grievances. And to be told by the, the elite media that all cloisters on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, that they are, they are uh, anti-science and they are, they are idiots and they're terrorists in some cases. After a while, the, the little people, the regular people, you know, the masses, they kind of want to be able to get back to work and earn a paycheck and run their businesses. Yeah, that's, that's, it'd be, that would be nice. Um, do you think, Andrew, the, you know, we had a constitutional attorney on uh, a couple of weeks ago who was talking about more specifically the church issue, whether you know, they can close churches. And he said there's been a lot of legal rulings over the years that allow states to take these uh, restrictions and implement them even on you know, core constitutional values for a short period of time in a global health crisis or, or a national health crisis. Is I, first of all, I mean, I I just don't feel comfortable with that. It just seems like I, I wouldn't want them to say, "Hey, no guns, uh, no protesting." Uh, you know, I think journalists would be very upset if we if they said no journalism during this uh, health crisis. It, it seems like some of these these constitutional rights are favored over others. Well, you know, and uh, you and I both know Matt Bevin, and I, I think he's a great guy. Mm-hmm. Um, the governor now, they have a Democrat governor in, in Kentucky, and they're saying through the state police, you can't even pull up and get a blessing. <laughs> like when people are trying to be cre- creative, it, it's really frightening when the government is not, uh, is not creative, right? When their reaction is, how much can we impose and not be creative? You, you, you say, okay, we don't want people just sitting in churches, we don't want them sitting in synagogues, and we want them social distancing. Okay, can the, can the pastor stand outside the church and give a blessing as people drive by? No. Okay, so the people tried good faith, and the government didn't. And then you have the, the governor of Michigan who says abortion, uh, liquor stores, pot dispensaries, and the lottery is essential but if you live in a rural part of the state and you're afraid you might be locked down and you want a box garden, no, you can't buy potting soil and seed. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah, it, it really does. Um, uh, talking to Andrew Wilkow of uh, Wilkow Majority and, and Wilkow here on The Blaze. Uh, let me tr- uh, transition a little bit to the media and the way they're handling this. I've noticed several stories recently where the media a- attempts to essentially dunk on uh, a, a Trump supporter who was skeptical of COVID-19, who has since had COVID-19 and, and died. This has happened a few times. They just wrote a, a big article about this in the New York Times where they were basically, I mean, it was a really disgusting story because they were talking about a person who was a Trump supporter, got COVID-19, has passed away, trying to tie that to people like Sean Hannity and, and people on the right and Donald Trump. And they, the media seems to, to zero in on these three or four comments that Trump made early on where he was pretty dismissive of this and t- tend to forget about all the comments from Pelosi and all the comments from uh, de Blasio and Cuomo. I mean, this is almost too predictable, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you had AOC who told us that we were racist if we weren't eating Chinese food. You had Nancy Pelosi telling everyone to come to Chinatown, which, by the way, if calling the virus a China virus because it originated in China is racist, then what is Chinatown? And you had the same thing. You had the same thing in New York City. You had Bill de Blasio and the health commissioner saying, come to Chinatown. And they were saying this pretty, pretty, you know, well into this. And yet 
and you had Don Lemon over at CNN who talked about a pastor who died, and he said, let that be a lesson. And my first reaction was, can you imagine if we applied that to, let's say, I don't know, a gay black man hosting a television show, and we did that if, if someone like that had gotten HIV or AIDS? We would be, you and me, you, me, Glenn, everyone else, we'd be run out. They would, they would run people out of the business just for knowing someone who said that. Mm. So, you know, we would, and we never would say that. It's tragic. If people lose their lives to a disease, we never go, no, that's, that's a lesson you should learn there, you know? The, the way they're treating this is it, it's us versus them, as if we are rooting for something here. And I'm, I'm noticing something else. This issue with the healthcare worker in Denver, if we even know he's a healthcare worker, standing there and they're calling it Tiananmen Square, they couldn't make it a thing originally when it was just killing men. Once it started to kill people in the cities, and it became a racial issue. It still didn't really move the president's poll numbers. So now they've picked their, their Cindy Sheehan. It's going to be the healthcare workers. It's MAGA versus healthcare workers. First of all, there is no MAGA versus healthcare workers. There's no Blaze versus healthcare workers. There's no talk radio versus healthcare workers. There are heroes, obviously. But because of that now, you're going to see staged events where people dressed in scrubs are going to become, are going to become the, the anti-protesters. And it's interesting to see because it doesn't seem like there's a long term plan here. I mean, I think, you know, look, the president of the United States said until the end of April, the guy that you guys, you guys say to handle this so poorly, um, he said to the end of April, these, these restrictions would be uh, a good idea. Guidelines would be a good idea, which I think is the right way of doing it. Guidelines rather than uh, actual restrictions. Um, and, you know, that was but there has to be some transition. Like, are we to believe that the plan is constant lockdown till 2027? Like, what is the plan here from the left other than just to say Donald Trump is wrong? Well, you know, it's, it's kind of fascinating that Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, who doesn't believe people should receive health care over 75, is now Joe Biden's health care advisor. <laughs> just, you know, have some fun with that one. Yeah. He, said 18, he said 18 months. Look at where we are right now economically after a month and a half, Right. Mm-hmm. Can you what, what would be left of this country after 18 months? What would be what would be left? I, I have no idea. No, nobody wants anybody to die from the coronavirus. But we lose 30, 40,000 people a year from the regular flu. And I, I'm old enough to remember that when we had the swine flu and thousands of people were dying, there was no lockdown, tyrannical, restrictive powers granted to governors who would then turn around and blame the president for their failures. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's blatantly inconsistent. Uh, I have about one minute left here, Andrew. I want to get your take on this. I have a very scientific um, uh, understanding of this issue, I believe. And the issue is that Andrew Cuomo sucks. Everyone keeps saying he's good. Everyone keeps saying he's doing this great job. I kind of look at him and, and think he's doing a terrible job. What do you think? I'll make your prep easy for tomorrow. Go research bioterrorism and pandemic studies that were done in the city of New York under his watch with the CDC, the NIH, and and Homeland Security. Many times since he's been governor and de Blasio has been mayor, they have studied bioterrorism. The problem is everybody knows that he didn't buy any of the equipment after the study. Mm. All right. Well, we'll do that. Uh, That's why we have you on, Andrew, to tell us where to go. Andrew Wilkow uh, from Wilkow Majority and Wilkow here on The Blaze. Thanks so much for taking the time, man. Sorry about all the uh, connection problems. I appreciate you doing it, though. 
it's on my end, man. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again. Andrew Wilkow, uh, make sure you uh, go uh, to blazetv.com slash stew. If you haven't subscribed yet, you can get all of Andrew's shows, all of my shows, plus a ton more. And it'll take, uh, it'll be 30 bucks less if you use the promo code stew. And make sure to do that because that's how they know you like this stupid show. We're back in a second. You know, if Barack Obama was Batman, Joe Biden wasn't exactly Robin. He's more of Robin's transgendered cousin, Robinette, which happens to be his middle name. Really, Joseph Robinette Biden. We have a new Robinette T-shirt to celebrate the election. Make sure you go and get it. StuDoesMerch.com. StuDoesMerch.com. We'll see you tomorrow.